Okay, today we finish up our study through the book of Colossians. And um, after this book and after, of course, Christmas uh, service next week, we'll be diving into the Thessalonian letters, which are, which are very powerful letters and have a lot to say about uh, the coming of the Lord in the last days. And so um, we embark on this last lesson. I entitle it, Opening the Door of Utterance, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 18. Now, this is the holiday season, and this is a time, I like to believe it's a time filled with love. Uh, we, we come together with, with our families. We come together with our church. We come together with friends. We also encounter a lot of people that perhaps we don't know. And if you are a believer who appreciates at all what it means to be saved and to have eternal life, then you probably are carrying a burden in your heart for somebody you know who is not saved. And you'll, you'll meet them over the course of these next couple of weeks. You'll see them, you'll, you'll, you'll feel the joy of the season, then you'll look at that person and you'll say, right now I'm pretty sure I know where they're going to spend eternity and it's not great. Sometimes when I come, like I was here on Friday and I just had to do a few errands here and pull into the shopping center and the shopping center's pretty full, people are thronged down the sidewalks and everything. And I'm thinking, how many of these people will I see in heaven? And it's just a heavy weight uh, on our hearts when we especially when it's somebody we know and love and we know that they're not walking with the Lord and, and, you, and you have this sorrow in your heart for them. And I just want you to understand that you're in divine company when you have that burden because approximately 2,000 years ago, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. You're probably thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, this is Christmas, not Easter. I know, believe me. <laughs> but he arrives to all these cheers and, and, and people are saying, you know, Hosanna, here comes the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was the very day that the prophet Daniel had prophesied in, in 570 years earlier. He had prophesied that this day would come. And the prophetic word declared it. Jesus was fulfilling it. And yet as he approached the city of Jerusalem, on what should have been the greatest day of his earthly ministry, Jesus wept. He wept and he said, if you had known, he's now speaking collectively to his people, Israel, and he's there in their capital. He's there in God's capital. And he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus was heartbroken because he knew that these people would ultimately reject their king. And would go on to an eternal death. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we look, at, look upon people we love and know, and even people we don't know, what is it that can make the difference for that person? What is it that will make the difference for our witness to that person? How can we say the right thing, do the right thing, have the boldness to approach them? And why is it that sometimes in our, notwithstanding our best efforts to provide a witness to loved ones, we don't get a fair hearing from them? They blow, they blow us off. Many of you will, I, I, I like to believe that many of you will attempt that over the holidays. And you may meet with, with uh, some success, but you may likely meet with uh, being brushed off. 
Well, I believe that the one thing that can make a difference in our witness to other people, to non-believers, is exactly what we're going to be looking at in this last chapter of Colossians. And it's summed up there in the third verse of the chapter, and that is that God, and I'm speaking now from the King James Bible, the King James Bible has Paul's prayer rendered that God would open a door of utterance, that God would open the way, the opportunity for the heart that's going to hear the word to be prepared to receive it, and for the heart that's delivering the word to have, to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, so that when you speak to these people, it, it, it has impact. And this is something that only God can open up for. So as we go through these verses, and we're going to mostly concentrate on verses 2 through 6, we're going to look at the importance of God opening this door, the manner in which we should pray that God would open that door, the, um, the manner in which we should conduct ourselves in our walk so that not only are they hearing the gospel, but they're seeing it in our lives. And then we'll finish our time together this morning by just going through the final uh, salutations and greetings that Paul offers at the end of the letter. So if you would, please stand with me now. We're going to read just verses 2 through 6 for now. We'll pick up the remainder of the verses later on in the Bible study. Here's what they say. This is Paul now speaking. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we share that burden that you have in your heart for the unbeliever. Lord, we see them living in the world, living as the world lives, being deceived, being led astray, being heartbroken, suffering loss, all without the comfort and the salvation that is only found in you. Lord, this morning we all pray collectively that you would open the door of utterance that we may speak into the lives of the lost among our family members and friends. Lord, lead us to those who are not only lost, but also prepared to hear the words of life, Lord. And so this morning, I pray that you would school us in our hearts through the power of your spirit to know how to approach and how to pray that we might be useful in your hand to save others. As your servant this morning, to share these words with your precious people, I pray, Father, that only you would be speaking today through my words and through my heart. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, let's just focus on verse 3 for a minute. Um, and you might find it strange. I did, just to be honest, uh, that we would need to pray to God to open the way for us to do something we both want to do and that we know God wants us to do it. You know what I mean? God, God has called us. I prayed the Great Commission during the worship time, I think, that we would go out into the world, we would make disciples of all nations, we would baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not my idea. That's the Great Commission. Jesus Christ gave us that direction. And so... Uh, 
why would God wants us to go out and do that, right? And the answer is a qualified yes, and I say qualified for this reason. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, we studied that not that many weeks ago. We learned there, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I always like to marry that verse with what we read in John 15, 5, because Jesus there, in giving that wonderful sermon about the vine and the branches, he said, without me, without him, I can do nothing. Without him, I can do nothing. With him, I can do all things. And so our willingness, our effectiveness, our opportunity to witness to a loved one or a stranger or a friend, it's solely dependent on how surrendered we are in that moment to Jesus Christ. It's, it all depends on God opening that door of utterance that we might have license from him to speak into the life of the person that we're approaching with the word of God. It is, it is so him. I know sometimes the burden that we have could really drive us to approach somebody. And maybe in the fervency of, of our desire that they get saved, we strike the wrong balance. We're going to talk about that balance in a moment here. We could strike the wrong balance and we could, we could actually, believe it or not, in the process of witnessing to somebody, we can get into the flesh about it. And we have to understand that there are many instances and opportunities to witness. And some of them hit the mark. But some of them go horribly wrong. And so I want to just take you, if you would, turn to Revelation. Because in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we get a great contrast between what a church can do when God opens the door of utterance versus what God might do to a church who has gotten into the flesh and the Lord is about to remove their lampstand, so to speak. So let's pick it up, first of all, in Revelation chapter 3. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it speaks about it's spoken to the church in Philadelphia, the city of love, and also the city of the eagles. And my son, Stephen, is just so... Well, anyway, that's another story. But the city of love, a, a relatively small church. And listen to what the Lord says. We'll just take uh, verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord says to this church. He's commending them. He's commending them, and he says... And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens the door and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now the door he's speaking of is the door of ministry, the door of utterance, the opportunity to serve God, glorify God, and lead others into the family of God. He only has that key. He opens that door and no one can shut it. He can shut that door. And no matter what you try to do, you cannot open it. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. This was a church that was doing it right. 
They were not doing anything in their own strength. They took what the Lord put in their hands. Sometimes we think that unless we have this and that, the other thing, we have a monstrous sanctuary, we have a you know, professional worship band, we have all these different, if we don't have that, how in the world could we ever minister to anybody? That's hogwash. The greatest ministry in the world was Jesus's ministry. And he had pretty much a, a cloak and a stick. And, and he changed the world with that. And the same with the disciples. Jesus opened a door for them and they changed the world in their city, city of Philadelphia. Now we look at another, um, another church that he spoke to. This is the church in Laodicea. I'm sorry, in Ephesus. And that's found in chapter 2 between verses 4 and 5. I just want to read you those verses. The church in Ephesus. Now, this was a big church. This was a, a famous church. This was a church with a lot of resources. This was a church with a lot of activity. They were working hard about all these different ministries they were providing and all that. But this is what the Lord said to that church in verse 4 after commending them. Actually, back it up to verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and all of that's labored in my name, haven't become weary, but check this out in verses four and five. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now, after commending this church in Ephesus with all the wonderful things they were doing, all the things that they were working hard at, the fact that they were trying to keep doctrinally pure, nevertheless, the Lord is telling them, unless you return to your first love, I will remove your lampstand. That lampstand is the influence, the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do any ministry at all. Now, that seems like a pretty harsh judgment, but here's the thing. The first love that Jesus Christ is telling them they must return to is him. It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in the busyness of ministry, the busyness of, of bringing people together in community. I mean, this is a small-scale church, but, you know, to put on the event of last Sunday, a lot of people had to do a lot of work. And, and then you get the, you get the jazz, like, like Paul mentioned it, where you get to see people coming together, enjoying the time, and it, and it gives you a good feeling. And you can, if you're not careful, you could get hooked on that, that you, you do these marvelous works, and then you get this psychic income of people enjoying themselves and all that. And before you know it, you're a professional uh, conference site, you're a professional party house, and you've lost the essence of why we get together at all. There's plenty of places you can go and have a good time in this day and age. But the reason why we do what we do in the church is to glorify and magnify Jesus Christ. And if we, if we get separated from that, why then we, we, we don't have that door of utterance opening up. Now, he, he really is offering this advice in the context of a prayer. And in an urging for them to pray, back in our text, verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Now, 
this, this particular passage, this particular prayer, and Paul's request that they pray for him to open a door of utterance, I find that prayer from Paul to be astounding. Why? Because Paul's in a prison. If I were in a prison and I was in the flesh, I'd be praying for a door to be opened. It wouldn't be a door of utterance. It'd be a door to my cell. I want out of here. Paul is praying instead, no, 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 don't worry about the fact that I am in prison because this was what I had prayed for previously. I had prayed, God, take me to the center of the empire. Take me to Rome. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know what it's going to cost. Lord said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll give you free passage and room and board. <laughs> and he did. He brought him there to this prison. And, and uh, Paul is in that prison. And he's not thinking about, well, I can't do anything until I get freed from this prison. I can't, I can't get to work for you, Lord, because right now I'm in this prison. And, and because I'm in this prison, I'm bound. Paul didn't consider himself bound because he was in prison. He considered himself bound to the ministry of the gospel. And, and this is why he, he describes it there. He says that they would, he asked them, pray also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. You see, he relates his chains to the obligation, to the privilege of preaching the gospel. And he prays, or he asks them that, that God would open for him a door to speak in the place where he is. Don't ever think that you'll get going in your ministry when God finally brings you to that special place that you have purposed in your mind is the place where you want to do ministry. Don't think for a moment that you're ever in a spot that, that confounds God's plan. If you're in a spot right now and you think there's something in your future, there very well may be. But you are planted there for this time, for this season, you should be ministering right there where you are. This is what Paul wanted to do. And we know from his other letters, he actually led people in the household of Caesar to Christ. So he's planted where he is and he says, Lord, open a door of utterance for me. Now, verse 2 says that they should continue in prayer and, and that they should uh, pray earnestly. They should pray earnestly. Another place in, other places in scripture uh, express the same idea by saying, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Here it's rendered, pray earnestly. Continue earnestly in prayer. And I think this is a very, very uh, important qualifier that Paul puts on his, his request that they pray is to pray earnestly or watch and pray. Because very often, our prayers can be kind of a perfunctory exercise. We're, we're uh, mechanical, automatic, obligatory. We pray over our food, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, amen. Or, you know, we, we have these little prayers we pray. Um, and, and sometimes we, we feel that we can get by with that kind of praying. It's very kind of rote, um, stale prayer. And, and the rationalization we would give ourselves is, well, look, I don't, I'm praying to an omniscient God. He knows everything. He already knows what I want to pray. He knows what I want to lift up. He knows every detail. He knows the details better than me. And so I'm going to kind of send up, uh, Lord, point, point your attention here, and you've got the rest of it. And this is, this is a false 
approach to prayer. It's based on a false premise. The false premise is I need to inform God or my job is to inform God. But oh, guess what? He already knows everything. So I'll just kind of give these subtitles and he'll, he'll get it. The reason why that, that is a, a, a false approach to prayer is because prayer is never intended to change God's mind about anything. There is no need for God to ever change his mind. The purpose of prayer is to change our hearts. We pray without ceasing. We pray with specificity. We pray with thanksgiving. We pray in earnest. We watch and we pray. Because it is by approaching God in prayer earnestly, by watching and praying, that we can be changed in our hearts and in our will to that which God has purposed to do. That's the purpose of prayer. That's the whole reason for prayer. Now, this idea of watch and prayer, I don't know about you, but I typically close my eyes when I'm praying, unless I'm driving, <laughs> and then I keep them open. But I, 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 I close my eyes when I pray, so this idea of watch and pray, which you find in other places in the Bible, for example, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4, I think, where they're building the walls of Jerusalem, and all these different uh, factions of, of opposition are coming at them, Sanballat and the rest of the rogues gallery, and they're trying to stop uh, Nehemiah's efforts to build the wall. And Nehemiah keeps telling his people, watch and pray, watch and pray, keep building the wall, keep building the wall. And so we might ask ourselves, um, why watch and pray? What is, what is the import of that statement? Jesus said it continually, right? We are to watch and pray lest we miss the very thing for which we're praying. That's the reason why we watch and pray. So that we don't miss God delivering the very thing that we were praying about. Let me give you an example. I mentioned Jesus. In that four days after that triumphant entry that I spoke to you about in the entry to this Bible study, Four days later, there's Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane with his apostles. His heart is extremely heavy. He knows what's coming. And he comes to his apostles, and what does he tell them? He gives them a very simple directive. Watch and pray. I'm going to go over there, and I want you guys gathered here to watch and to pray. And he, he encourages them to do that repeatedly. And of course, we know that they don't. He actually finds them sleeping. Now, we ask ourselves, what exactly was Jesus praying for in the garden? Jesus, as difficult as it was for him, was praying that God's will be done. Jesus knew what that meant. It meant his death. He even, even entertained the prayer, God, if there is any way this cup could pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Now, we would ha I think it would be a very safe assumption to believe that that is exactly what Jesus was asking his disciples to pray about. Pray that the Lord's will will be done. He had already told them that he must die for the sake of his bride. 
and he asked them to watch and to pray, which they didn't do. Then along comes the the temple guard, the, the soldiers, and Jesus is arrested. This is the beginning of the conclusion of Jesus' mission to come to earth. He didn't come to earth to be a great teacher. He didn't come to earth to be a great moral example, although he was both of those, came to die. And so this, this moment in the garden where he's arrested is the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. And what do the disciples do? Well, Peter tries to uh, fight back with a sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, He's got a sword, and there's a hundred men there with swords. The others run for the hills, leaving Jesus to face the unthinkable by himself. Were these men watching and praying? No. But what transpired? What transpired was exactly what they were praying for, or should have been praying about. They missed it because they weren't watching and praying. They may have prayed a little bit and then fallen asleep. But here comes God's answer. Here comes God's solution. Here comes the way in which God wants to affect his will. And they missed it because their hearts were not aligned to God's hearts in that moment. And this is why we need to pray in that way where we watch and pray. Because we may find ourselves in the flesh when God is at the point of delivering the very thing we prayed for in a form, in a manner we didn't expect, we didn't know because we don't know the full purpose of God's will and we miss it because we were not praying earnestly. We were not watching for God's work. Now, he says also there in verse two that we should pray with thanksgiving. Sincere thankfulness in our prayers puts fervor in our hearts for the Lord. In fact, when you pray for something, something big, I mean, like you've got a loved one that's, that's suffering a, a, a fatal illness. You have a, a financial crisis in your home. You have a relationship crisis in your home. When you pray to God about outcomes in that, it might sound like, like an insult for me to stand here and read this to you and say, hey, if you're praying uh, for that relationship issue, that finance issue, that, that uh, disease or, or illness issue, start your prayer with thanksgiving. And you say, why? The Lord hasn't delivered on it yet. I haven't got that for which I'm asking. No, that's the wrong attitude when we pray. We pray with thanksgiving because Again, we're not trying to change God's mind. He already has a solution. We're praying with thanksgiving because we know that whatever form that solution takes, it's for our good and his glory. It will be the best solution, whether it means a death, somebody leaving our life, or whatever. But God is going to do what God is going to do, and we're going to thank him for it because he's God and we're not. And this is what, what he's asking for. I like to think of thanksgiving, praying in thanksgiving, like the fire that lights the incense on the altar of incense. The significance of the altar of incense in both the tabernacle and the temple is the priest would go in there and light that incense and, and that smoke that would rise up from the burning incense was, was symbolic of the prayers, the intercessory prayers of the priest on behalf of the people rising up to the Lord. 
And it was the fire on the piece of incense that enabled those prayers or that incense to reach heaven. Equally, thanksgiving is like the fire that lights our prayers, that brings it up before the Lord. When he knows we're praying with a thankful heart, boy, Lord hears those prayers. And so he asks us to do that. Now, now we've talked about praying for the door of utterance and, and, and being able to speak into people's lives when we get in the spirit and not in the flesh. But now he, he has some advice here that, that is concerning our conduct because you've often heard it said that you have to walk, you have to talk, walk the talk. If you're, if you're bringing the precepts of scripture to people in, in language, boy, they better see it in your life. Because if they don't, they're going to say, well, there must be no power in what they're teaching me because it, does, it hasn't affected their life. Their life is no different because they know it. So why would mine be different if I take on board what they're, what they're saying to me? And so look at verses four through seven or four through six. I'm sorry. He says that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Let's look there at verse four first, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. When, when he talks about make, make it manifest, he's talking about the word of God, the gospel. And he wants to make it manifest. Now, to make something manifest to another person is to make it easily understood and recognizable to their mind. And sometimes when we explain things of some importance, less can be more. I, I always come back to this example. Um, you sit down, you're gonna, maybe you'll be sitting down with kids to play games, board games, over the holidays. You're going to sit down, you're going to play Sorry, you're going to play Monopoly, you're going to play Candyland. And very often when you say to somebody who doesn't know how to play the game, they ask you, uh, how do you play this game? And a lot of times people will dive into the things that you do in the game. Well, you roll these dice and then you move this little guy and you got to stay on your color and you got to do this. And, and it's just a jumbled, confusing mess. What they should do is they should say, the object of the game is to get your little guy from here to there. And along the way, you're going to encounter obstacles. And the way you move is by rolling a dice or drawing a card or whatever. But you start with a big idea. What am I trying to do here, right? And so when we want, if, we're, if we're going to be sharing the Lord in a way that makes it manifest, they need to know what's the object here. What's the object to this game, if you want to put it in the parlance of games? What, do you, what are we trying to do? What are you trying to get me to do or to have? And this is why uh, a lot of the power has been taken out of the church because a lot of the church doesn't want to start with the object of this. The object of this is to avoid eternal death. It's that simple. Jesus came so that he would die so that you won't die. And, you know, you can talk yourself blue in the face about what happened to the dinosaurs. Can God make a rock too heavy for him to lift? And all these other crazy questions that will be coming to you when people know that you're a believer in God. You can talk about that stuff all day long and you will not move the needle one iota. In fact, this is what I mean when I say that a lot of times we could find ourselves in the flesh sharing the gospel because all of a sudden we get into a mindset where our objective is to show that other person how much of the scripture we know. Eh, wrong answer. What we need to do is start with them by saying, we are all 
sinners. It's a tough message. A lot of churches don't want to preach that. They want to preach love, and love is the overarching theme because if you are certain to die and someone's willing to die in your place, that's love. That is the quintessential indicator of love. I will die for you. And so if people don't understand that they're lost, getting saved has no appeal. And so start, to make the gospel manifest, we need to understand who we are and we need to understand who Jesus is. And there is no need, you don't need a Bible degree, you don't need to be a theologian, you don't need to be a pastor, you don't need to be a priest, you need to be a saved human being. You are the world's expert on what happened to you. No one can argue with what happened to you. And so you could say, I was a sinner. I was lost and that I was found. Who found me? Jesus Christ. Who's he? He's the son of God. Oh, how do you know that? Because he came, he died in my place and he was raised again. And he sits now in heaven and he advocates for me minute by minute because he loves me and he loves you and he died for you. That's making it manifest and it doesn't have to be complicated. He says there in verse five, to walk in wisdom. Whenever we see the word walk in relation to our, our life as a believer, it's referring to our conduct, how we carry ourselves through the world. We spent a lot of time on that in the last two lessons. Um, people want to see the gospel that you're speaking to them and not in a phony way and not in a legalistic way. Well, I, I don't do that. And you know, if you're with people in the world, they're going to do worldly things. And before they have had the opportunity to hear the gospel, you're not helping anybody by pointing out the things that they do in their life that you don't do because you're saved and they're not. That's just a terrible approach. Not to say that you should, you should uh, affirm bad things in someone's lifestyle, but, but that's not part of the conversation when you're trying to lead them to the Lord to start out with. You might point out that um, you know, you're, you're crying out in pain, you're crying out because your life's a wreck, might be because you're drinking a quart of vodka every day, but just spitballing here. But, but I mean, you want to stay on the track, right? You want to stay on the message. But this idea of, um, of walking, walking in the spirit is so important. And this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He said, but if I discipline my body and bring it into subject, uh, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, Lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul is pointing out very clearly there. If you live a life that evidences sin and worldliness, you will disqualify yourself from being able to speak the truth into the life of another person. It's a very simple idea. This is, um, this is something also that James encouraged people through his epistle. In James 3.17, he said, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom we should be praying with for, rather. That's the wisdom that we should be living out in the, in the face of, of uh, unbelievers. And this is the kind of wisdom that Solomon prayed for. First Kings chapter 3, I believe it is. He prayed to the Lord. The Lord said, I will grant you anything. And the thing that he prayed for was wisdom, the kind of wisdom that James just described there. 
And then he talks, uh, back in our text, he talks about redeeming the time. We don't know how much time we have. I'm sure my brother Kevin and his wife Lisa went to bed on Friday night, just another night, looking forward to the next day, getting ready for Christmas, getting ready for service on Sunday. They didn't know that that would be Lisa's last full day. They didn't know. And we, we, any one of us here sitting here today, we could be enjoying our last day. And if the Lord gives you another day, that's another day to serve him. And if he gives you another day, that's another day to serve him. Equally, for those who, are, who might be here this morning and are not saved, and you're kind of entertaining it, you're here, aren't you? You're kind of listening, what's this all about? You don't know whether you will have another day to consider this, whether you could come back next week on Christmas and say, well, last week wasn't terrible, so I'll try and come back another week. But you don't know. So we as servants of God, we need to redeem the time that we have to serve the Lord. And for those who are not saved, they need to redeem the time that God has given them because if you leave the earth with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you leave the earth as the most successful person one can be. Elon Musk, if he leaves this earth without knowing Jesus Christ, even with all of the wealth that he has, he would not leave the earth on his last day as successful as any believer in Jesus Christ. The believer in Jesus Christ redeemed the time the person who spent their entire life focusing on wealth didn't redeem any of the time. And so this is what he's saying there. He says in verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is perhaps the most impactful piece of advice there. He talks about our speech being always with grace, but seasoned with salt. Now, we know what salt did in that time, don't we? Salt was a preservative. It was something that was used, for example, to preserve meat. They didn't have refrigeration. So if you wanted to keep meat and have it be edible beyond the day that you butchered the animal, you had to preserve it in some way, and salt was that, uh, that vehicle by which they would preserve food. That's why it's used as a metaphor for the word of God being, uh, or, or a believer being seasoned with salt is to say that when we bring the word to people, uh, we preserve the truth and we, we convey the truth. But that preservation of the truth by us is that saltiness. And he's saying that we should be salty in the sense of our, of our speaking forth the real truth. But then he also says that our speech should also be seasoned with grace. Grace is the sweet, the love. So salty, it's got to be true, but sweet, it's got to be filled with grace. As soon as I saw those two things, I immediately thought of two things. Kettle corn at the fair and a good pie crust. Because a good kettle corn, you watch them make it there in that big receptacle that they have and they're adding in sugar and they're adding in salt and if they get too much salt it's not very nice and if they get too much sugar you lose the saltiness so you don't it doesn't taste as good likewise with a pie crust pie crust has got to be sweet but it's got to have salty by the way how many people here would say they make a good pie crust see me after service 
<laughs> just kidding. <laughs> really, there's just nothing quite like the right balance of salty and sweet in a pie crust, right? It's just so good. That's the same way we should share the gospel. It should be true. I mean, don't compromise the truth. Let's not be a cowardly church that's, well, we can't tell them what really is going on. They'll never come back again. Well, no one will be coming to our coffee bar. You know, we'll have to sell the smoke machines. <laughs> no, it should be as true, as right as it can be. But it needs to be sweetly given, just like a good pie. Now, he finishes this, uh, this uh, epistle, and, and we're, we're on our last lap here. Um, and he's, he's calling out certain servants. I like to think of this as Paul is now addressing the fruit that came from his ministry because all of the things he's advising here were true about his ministry. And so uh, we read there in verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Now, now Tychicus was actually the individual who brought this letter to the Colossians to them. He was with Paul in Rome. Paul wrote this letter. He probably learned about all the things that were going on in Colossae through this man. The, the, the whole Gnostic uh, approach that some of these false teachers were taking that he wrote about in the early chapters here. And now he's asking this man, Tychicus, to bring the letter to the, the Colossian church. He says, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your heart. And then he, he says, um, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, he will make known to you all things that are happening here. Now, Onesimus is from Colossae. Onesimus is the runaway slave that Paul is speaking about when he writes the letter to Philemon. Philemon was a man in the Colossian church, and Onesimus was his slave, and Onesimus robbed him and then ran away to Rome. And while in Rome, he met Paul, Maybe he met him in the prison. And Paul led him to the Lord. And I mean, I was mentioning last week in our Bible study that the Lord doesn't condone slavery. He hates slavery. But he speaks to the heart. So what does he do? He saves the slave. Then he sends him back to Philemon with a letter telling Philemon that he is now your brother in Christ. And anything that is on his account, you should put on my account. That's the way believers live for one another. This whole race thing, it, it, it's a subterfuge. It's a reason to divide people. That's not the Lord. The Lord never saw that or wanted that. The Lord was worried about the heart of both the person who was enslaved and the person who was doing it, saying, you need to give your heart to Christ so that you might receive the brother or the sister that God has put into your life. And that's, that's what he's praying about with Onesimus. Then Aristarchus, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And this was a man that was with Paul for a, a lot of the time. He was a great minister. He's a fellow prisoner, uh, greets you, and uh, he's with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And, and so and then he says in verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice. So there was another man. Uh, that was in their circle. That name was Jesus, but he was called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God 
who are of the circumcision, they have proved to be a comfort to me. So these are men who are also of, of a Jewish background, but they were now co-laborers with Paul in Christ. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of, of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hipparapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And this is comforting to know that Luke was there with Paul. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. Laodicea was about nine miles away from Colossae. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, you're quickly looking in your Bible. Where's the letter to the Laodiceans? There isn't one. So there's been a lot of scholarly debate on exactly what letter is Paul referring to there in verse 16. Read the epistle from Laodicea. And there are a number of different... Um, Theories. I'm not going to give them all to you now in the interest of time. But the one that I think makes the best sense is that the letter that he's referring to there is actually the letter to the Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians was written before this letter, and it was circulating through the churches in that area at this time, and it was believed to have been in the church of Laodicea at that time. So Paul wanted the Colossian church to read that letter as well, the Ephesian letter, which was there in, in Laodicea. He goes on in verse 17 and says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So there you have it. You've now completed a study in the book of Colossians. Great book. Amen. We'll be, uh, like I say, the next book study we'll be doing will be in 1 Thessalonians. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy towards us, Lord. We thank you, Father, for this word and how it has blessed us, how it has built us up and nourished us. Father, may we go forth from here today with a door of utterance opened by you because we have asked for it fervently. And we pray, Father, that we would be instruments in your hand as we approach loved ones and friends, and even strangers in this holiday season where people's hearts tend to be more open to hear about you, Lord. Let us redeem the time, Lord, not taking for granted another day in our lives. Let us use those days for your purpose, for your will, for your glory. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Enjoy the day. God bless you. And please keep uh, the Edwards family and Calvary Chapel Clayton in your prayers, okay? God bless. <laughs>